If you were to do the ratio of information gleaned to questions asked of party leaders and officials, um, it's, it's probably getting a bit exponential. But ever since election night, of course, those party leaders uh, of the, the successful parties have been telling journalists, no, wait for the final results. And of course, on Friday, we got those. Uh, but even so, it seems not much has changed. Winston Peters still refusing to acknowledge reporters. Uh, just a short time ago, News Hub at six, their political reporter Lloyd Burr still marching alongside Winston Peters as he's walking along that travelator <laughs> that runs under the ground outside <laughs> Parliament, waving the microphone under his nose and complaining about, I think, the track, another day of the silent treatment. Uh, but I think patience is wearing out with this a bit. Uh, Audrey Young of The Herald, their former political editor and our columnist, she has a weekly premium politics newsletter. She gave a, a brickbat to Peters, first of all for ignoring David Seymour's attempts to reach out um, after the uh, election final score was in. I think Winston Peters claimed he thought the text might have been a fake or a spoof mm. or something like that. She says, look, it would have taken about two seconds to find that out, not five days, which I think is a good point. Mm. And she said more broadly, not just Peters, but all the others, the, the silence on forming the coalition is deafening, she said, and not good for the public. Although I guess the media are kind of filling that deafening silence void with you know, angry, noisy criticism mm. of their failure to communicate. But her point is, as she put it, like the seeing is believing and it might help to see the democratic process at work. Peter's ongoing petulance, she says, is not particularly confidence enhancing either. Uh, fair enough comment. Uh, yeah, I think so. Although, um, having said that he's still giving some reporters the silent treatment, um, he has given a couple of interviews. So yesterday, Tuesday, uh, Winston Peters did uh, sit down for quite a long and very calm um, and quite civil interview with Brent Edwards, uh, political editor of the NBR. That was a video interview, but uh, Brent also wrote it up for the website of the NBR for their subscribers. And this was not at all confrontational. So a complete contrast to, I think we saw those scenes of Winston Peters, I think it was launching their Port Waikato by-election campaign, uh, calling TVNZ's Jack Tame a moron for the party faithful and talking about left-wing shills in the media, quite um, conspiratorial stuff in a way. But uh, look, this interview with Brent Edwards was, was very calm, and he did actually clarify with Brent um, uh, some of the approaches, the fact that they'd use chiefs of staff to communicate, uh, whether it was you know with both National Land Act or just one at a time, and that these things were going on in the background and that maybe reporters were a bit too hung up on whether particular leaders were talking to each other. Um, but he also gave Winston Peters a very different interview to, in fact, it was billed as his first one since election night and the stand-ups he gave with the media then. Uh, this was on the platform to Sean Plunkett, the platform's founder. So mm. very different. So Peters didn't say much in that interview about uh, the government negotiations, but a lot of it was actually taken up with Sean Plunkett and Mr Peters sharing their kind of mutual disdain for the mm. mainstream media. And interestingly, uh, after that, um, Sean Plunkett said that, look, Winston Peters is perfectly entitled not to talk to the media. And he actually criticised some of the media for pestering Mr Peters to answer the questions. And he, he singled out News Hub. Did some hissy fit story uh, from one of their reporters saying, oh, Mr Peters won't talk to us. And he turned us away at his door. Well, he's allowed to, you know particularly when you publish and you are such a shite organisation. <laughs> so, yeah, right. not mincing his words there, clearly not a fan of News Hub, but that's a bit of a... T I'm just wondering what politicians who, you know, were given a rough ride, given the tough questions on Morning Report by Sean Plunkett back in the day, would make of him now telling his audience, look, a 
political leader doesn't have to answer the media's questions. Not not a problem there. They must be scratching their heads at that particular uh, change of direction. Well, after so many days of not having their questions answered, what are the media? How are they showing any signs of you know perhaps giving up? I mean. Does it matter? Um, not yet. No, they're still doing it. As I said, Lloyd Burr, they're still marching alongside in lockstep with a, a completely silent Winston Peters who's trying to get away from him. Um, but it doesn't matter to uh, Claire Trevet. She's the Herald's political editor. She wrote a piece where she said, it was interesting, she's kind of had a bob each way in a, in a, in a sense. She said, Luxon and the other leaders do need some quiet to sort out the tangled demands and requests without the media and public seeing every squabble and surrender. Hmm. And then she said to have it otherwise would start things off on a shaky basis in terms of the public perception. So in one sense saying, yeah, if they can do this without media scrutiny, it's probably better for them. But then she said a total blackout on media is ridiculous, especially when it's being ignored by some mm-hmm. uh, party leaders. And she, her final point was this, like justice, democracy has to be seen to be done. Where is the harm in letting people know what they can know? And mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's fair enough too. Now, there have been a few reporters who have suggested that next week's APEC conference in the US uh, with uh, Biden in attendance would be the deadline because the new Prime Minister, Luxon, should be there. Yeah, I think some reporters said, yeah, this is uh, the, the point they had. The government will have to be sorted by this particular date, but uh, which is, I think, a week from now uh, that that takes place. But... Uh, some have since then said, look, they have no confidence that's going to happen now. Uh, here's an exchange actually about that. This is on the News Hub Nation show on Sunday. Uh, and again, it's, it's News Hub's political editor, Jenna Lynch, who was asked about that by the host, Simon Shepard. One last thing. Will we have a coalition agreement announced before APEC? Anyone? <laughs> I don't know. I've got travel plans to go, so but I'm not going if Christopher Luxon's not going. Let me know. Okay, Chris, let Jenna know. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, so her travel plans might be messed up, but interesting that she said she wouldn't go if Christopher Luxon didn't go. I mean, that would be a shame, I guess, if the press pack travels. I mean, New Zealand will have to be represented, won't they? And this is this could be a major meeting, APEC. Logic going on geopolitically, and we've got a new government. Um, the media should definitely be there because there's going to be lots to report. Well, I noticed also tonight on Pacific Waves and a number of occasions, uh, Christopher Luxon's been criticised for not being at the Pacific Islands Forum as well with this, you know, need to be more cognisant of what's going on in the Pacific. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think there's another deadline with ministerial Warrants running out. Jenna Lynch said that on News Hub at Six last night. Mm. I wasn't aware of that till she mentioned it. Um, presumably, political reporters all knew about that. So another another deadline. So some constitutional quirks going on, as she put it. So mm. lots lots to sort out. So there is pressure uh, on those leaders. But yes, we've heard they're not keen to give too many details about just how far along they are. Now, last week on Midweek Media Watch, that uh, very, very good program, I asked Hayden about the pause in politics, and you're really giving us all a bit of a holiday from it, um, <laughs> and also in the media. Uh, some people like that. Uh, uh, any in the media feeling this way still? Yeah, actually, we had someone write in in response to your chat with Hayden about that, where I think someone said it was irony that Hayden had also talked separately about Twitter under Elon Musk, you know, doing away with its moderation, and this was bad and turned it into a toxic platform. And then in the next breath, kind of laughing about, oh, we don't really need this government. What's the hurry? You know, let's 
carry on, we're happier without one. But I don't think Hayden or yourself were seriously <laughs> suggesting we return to some sort of anarchic, ungoverned state. It was just a bit tongue-in-cheek about the time it was taking. Indeed. But John John Campbell, uh, he's enjoying it. He he wrote a piece for the uh, TVNZ, uh, TVNZ site called, what's the title? Oh, yes, Maybe the Time Without a Government is the Best Time. And he said this, he said, Sure, nothing happens, but nothing may perhaps be preferable to what the menage a blah of National Act in New Zealand First has in store for us. And then he went on to make a separate point. He says, in any case, nothing is what the lowest income New Zealanders are about to receive from the government, so maybe they can get some practice in being ignored. So hmm, a bit of a barb there from John Campbell. Absolutely. Right. But, you know, even if they're not prepared to reveal all that much about the talks, there are some of the party leaders. David Seymour, for example, seems happy to front up and talk to the media. Um, But I feel sorry a bit for Chris Bishop because he's the one, the national campaign manager. He's been asked dozens of times by the media when this government would be formed and given nothing away. This bit made me laugh. This is TVNZ's Q&A show on Sunday. It was, uh, listen to these kind of hollow laugh. Of, uh, of Jack Tame when Chris Bishop responds to yet another question about when they're going to have a new government. You will be one of the first to know, Jack. We'll, what do you mean, uh, one of? We'll, you know, we'll have you on... Uh, <laughs> you know, you'll, well, you'll be, on the, you'll be on the press release list. You'll find out like everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, OK, press release. Thanks very much. You know, what comes next? Are you going to get us a bottle of wine or some snacks or something like that? He didn't seem too impressed with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, just to round this off, the, um, the rival show to Q&A, on uh, Channel 3, TV3, uh, the News Hub Nation show, Simon Shepard, who we heard from earlier, he sounded <clears throat> kind of almost um, this, almost like he was plaintively appealing for this to be sorted out. This is how he, um, he signed off the show last weekend. New National MP Tim Costley there. And that's all from us for now. All we need is a government. So I guess we'll come back next weekend. We'll see you then. Amihi nui, tenatato katoa. He said, like, almost, well, what's the point of doing this if we don't have a government? Almost desperately hoping. I guess we'll be back next week, but, you know, things go on even without a government. Plenty to talk about. I don't think he needs to be so worried. Now, some reporters have been worried about the building of a, of a stable government, but some have also been highlighting the financial fragility of the media. Yeah, a whole string of stories just in the last seven days or so. About various media companies' financial problems, um, I'll run through a list for you here. The NBR dug into TBNZ's troubles um, late last week. Business Desk uh, had an interesting piece about MediaWorks, uh, the other broadcasting company, their woes. The Post in Wellington, uh, in their weekend edition, just gone. They had a, a, a full-page look at RNZ's um, difficult past year and what they've got coming up. Uh, and the Herald um, got the boss of the spin-off in to look at uh, TV3's owner, that's Discovery and Warner, so I guess the other big broadcasting company mm-hmm. in our media here, and they've got problems too. So, uh, shall we go through them one at a time? Let's um, start with TVNZ's troubles. Yeah, I'll try not to, it could be a bit of a bleak <laughs> sequence, but yes, TVNZ, they released their financial results for the year to June recently, so the NBR seized on those. Ad revenue down, their earnings down, uh, business confidence dropping, and as we heard before the election, it announced a whole bunch of cost-cutting measures, uh, hiring and commissioning freeze effectively, um, and some senior executives have also left, including a senior executive, the head of content, Kate Calver, uh, for a long time she was known as uh, Kate Slater. Um, But the main thing in this was that it said TVNZ, the NBR says, is now planning 
to start using about $100 million in reserve that it has to fund its digital transformation. And um, this is a looming problem. And Kate Calver, who's um, on the way out, earlier this year told Business Desk at the moment, our IT and technology, in her words, holds us back from everything we'd like to do. Mm. So that digital transformation, uh, do you know what it is? Uh, And how much of that, what, $100 million? Yeah, I don't know how much it would really cost, but what it is is basically they've invested a lot in TVNZ Plus, the on-demand platform, previously called TVNZ On Demand. They've added live sport to it now, and they've talked in the past uh, reluctantly, I think, but about how that's really straining their capacity, their their technological capacity, because you know the the demands on it are so great. That it's got more than way more than a million accounts and subscribers now, and it's important because it gets. Um, people engage with TVNZ's mm. content uh, that don't watch either a lot of or any television. So, you know, basically we know from government IT projects, you know, just how expensive these can be. They often make the news when the costs blow out. So this is a big cost and, uh, you know, their income and revenues are shrinking. So, yeah, that's the problem. Um, and yes, it's, uh, it's just one they don't have much choice but to confront. And it would have been hard for TVNZ to plan for the future as well with that, the merger of, with RNZ going on at the same time, and then that was then getting scrapped at the last minute. Yeah, indeed. And TVNZ's acting chief executive Brent McAnulty told the NBR all about that in an inter- interview that was attached to that article. Um, and he spoke fairly frankly about that. He did say, look, most of their costs were actually covered. I think it was the same with RNZ, but it took time and money, executive effort, all the same. He talked about the opportunity cost, you know, the things they could have been doing if they weren't doing this. And it is complicated because TVNZ had a new board appointed by the outgoing government, effectively. You know, don't know how they're going to get on with it with the new government, you know, yet to be formed. Uh, the previous chief executive, uh, Simon Power, quit at the end of July. Mm-hmm. And so Brent McAnulty just filling in. They haven't got a replacement yet. Um, in fact, um, NBR's Dieter Deboni, who did the interview with Brent McAnulty, just asked him, well, what's the holdup appointing that new TVNZ boss? Those are really questions for the board. But what I'll say is we had a... Um uh, a substantial board refresh uh, on, on on the day that I started in this role. Um, look, it's a it's a it's a board that's got a lot of experience in um, in, in television and the cultural sector. But uh, like any new board, it takes a while for them to get up to get up to speed. And I think they probably needed to um, get a handle on TVNZ and where it was at before starting the uh, the process. Mm, and so, top of the list for that chief executive. Uh, next year we'll be working out what the new government wants mm. from it and <laughs> work out who, who their minister is going to be. But uh, actually, Dieter Deboni did ask Brent McAnulty, are you putting your hat in the ring uh, to be the, the permanent mm. chief executive? And, and got a, what I'd call a Chris Bishop type of response. You know, I can't really tell you much about that. And those are questions for others really handling the process and the board and so on. So a lot of that going on right now. Yeah. So that's TVNZ. Business Desk looked at MediaWorks woes. Yeah, they've got a lot of debt. has been recently reported they kind of missed their deadline for filing uh, their accounts. They had to close that station today, FM, to save money after sinking a lot of cost into it. So that's the background. But the uh, Daniel Dunkley of Business Desk reported that $126 million is the loss for 2022 for MediaWorks. Um, and that's an awful lot. He goes on to say, look, this is historic. Pro- problems go all the way back to um, 2007, so more than 15 years ago. MediaWorks was sold off to a private equity firm called Ironbridge then and was settled with huge debt. And that's been a problem ever since, even though the company's gone through changes and ownerships and buyouts and so on since then. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the difficulty they face. It's all historic and uh, it's still struggling.
yeah, of course, back in those days, um, it owned TV3 and a bunch of other mm. TV channels as well, lots of uh, radio stations. But these days, MediaWorks is just a radio broadcaster, isn't it? Music radio. Yeah. And radio still makes money? Yeah, it does. I mean, there's also a bit of billboard advertising that Australian mm. company QMS is also part of the mix. But yeah, MediaWorks has different owners now. Um, Oak Tree Capital Management, they've been in charge since 2015. And yeah, they sold off those uh, TV uh, channels, which were costing money, I think losing money mm. in late 2020. So that helped, I guess. But um, Daniel Dunkley reports uh, the financial statements for 2022. Uh, the liabilities exceed assets by 19.4 million to the end of last year. Really, according to him, in the long term, it's basically the, the creditors, the holders of the debt that will decide the company's future. Mm. The TV division of MediaWorks was, as you mentioned, sold to Discovery Warners, what, two years ago now. So it now owns TV3. It's just scrapped its uh, 7 o'clock uh, evening show, nightly show, The Project. Um, uh, a sign of broader problems, perhaps? Yes, yeah, maybe. So spinning the wheel here on our um, cycle <laughs> through these, uh, these stricken media companies. Yeah, mm. so Discovery had already uh, quietly ditched a couple of other news shows like the early part of the AM show in the early morning. Also, it's 11.30 uh, weekday news bulletin, which was one of the first things new owners did was introduce a new program as a bit of a commitment to expanding its news output. And the Sunday Star Times last weekend said the project show I think on air for seven years now. That was initially seen as a pretty cost-effective way of filling that uh, 7 p.m. peak time time slot and replacing, you know, forerunners like Campbell Live and so on. But uh, now they're saying the cost of paying the the fees to the Aussie rights holders of the project where the show originated was not a good investment. And it quotes some, for example, a former staffer in, in the Star Times story here saying that there's a broader issue. Media companies can't uh, properly value or retain their journalists. Um, this anonymous staff uh, says uh, they're going to burn through a whole lot of young and enthusiastic people who are not able to be exploited until they're old enough to realise that's not normal. Uh, the sinking lid policy that they've had for quite a while, according to the the paper and its sources, um, you know, no apparent end in sight, bit of a vicious cycle. So yes, not not a happy ship, according to that article. And does it make it any clearer what uh, the replacement program will likely to be after the project? No, it's it's not really clear. So they'll carry on to the end of the year. But it does quote an email from their director of news, Sarah Bristow, who's actually another senior executive and news chief who's leaving the business. She's signalled that she's on the way out. She says we're... Um, redefining the show and the focus being to capture digital audiences drive online engagement but actually the project itself did feel like an attempt to engage at least with a younger or mm. digital age audience a lighter mix not traditional 7pm but you know that 7pm news current affairs habit if you like you know challenging interviews and serious subjects that's that's completely changed now in fact that was the focus uh this week of an edition of the herald's daily podcast the front page so they brought in the spin-offs founder and media writer Duncan Grieve, and he looked at also not just uh, the project and um, discovery, but some of the uh, broad media problems we've just been talking about here, the financial mm. business problems. But he reckoned, it was interesting, he said uh, the project's demise and Today FM also being turned off by MediaWorks, which we mentioned uh, the other broadcast company a little bit earlier, he said that just shows there's just no margin anymore for these broadcasters to kind of experiment or take a bit of a loss. And uh, when he was asked, look, is that 7 p.m. current affairs habit uh, among the audience dead, uh, this was his view on that. The cyclical fashion for 7 p.m. shows has moved away from that style. 
Alex Casey wrote a terrific history of the 7pm current affairs show for the spin-off this week in the aftermath of the Project News and described some of the sort of early current affairs shows on TVNZ in the 60s and they honestly sound a lot like the project. Mm. More people, places and happenings, this dear lady had quite definite ideas on the design of the new decimal currency notes. It could be a little bit of New Zealand in it, don't you think so? Well, we've got the New Zealand bird, isn't it? Yes, I know. I still like to see a kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting point there that, to say that, you know, for all that broadcasters think how the hell do we get this new modern digital fickle audience mm. but actually to say if you go back those old news shows that were on after the main network news mm. like town and around or whatever this is going a long way back you know they also actually you know had a kind of lighter touch lighter content that mm. echoed the project yeah i thought it was a, an interesting point but you know the main point i guess that uh, that podcast and duncan grieve was making uh, advertising by whatever means, you know, the local media's share of it is, is shrinking and uh, it's just going to be harder and harder to make those programs, you know, however they are kind of formatted. Of course, now RNZ doesn't have that commercial revenue issue, uh, but other challenges, uh, including holding on to listeners, attracting new listeners. Was that the focus of the piece on the on the post that uh, that you mentioned about RNZ? Yeah, a fair, a fair bit of it was on that. So it was a bit, a bit of a two-parter in a sense that it was looking back at the difficult year, uh, all the things that happened over the past 12 months at RNZ and what's coming up next. Because, yeah, as was pointed out, um, in the article, uh, well, in fact, this is the way Nicky McDonald, the author, put it, a uh, uh, $25.7 million annual budget boost makes RNZ a rare beast in a media sector battling declining revenue, uh, abandoning live radio and the six o'clock news for YouTube and TikTok are the problems. Uh, but yeah, that budget uh, increase, yes, is um, makes RNZ one of the few that might have extra money to spend. So she ran through a lot of the problems, you know, their website editing crisis as was called the merger collapse which we already talked about mm. um, but there's also you know they she made mention of new blood coming in in fact you know former colleague of hers from stuff for example mark stevens now here along with others from stuff uh, joining rnz because uh, they've been able to hire um for, for their digital uh, journalism offering as well as on air um so, yeah, that uh, it also quotes Chief Executive Paul Thompson, who incidentally, um, the article didn't mention it, the RNZ annual report came out recently, he got, a, even in a difficult year, a $65,000 uh, performance bonus, according to the annual report, so not a, not a bad year for him mm-hmm. personally, maybe, but uh, he's quoted as saying, look, just because we're trying to make RNZ's digital presence more relevant and accessible and reach more New Zealanders, that doesn't mean we'll take a fluffier, more commercial approach. He said that would be a real mistake. Other companies are doing that really well. So, yeah, we'll mm. see. Mm. Did the article dwell on radio audiences uh, declining? A little bit. It, it was basically described it as a kind of you know, mega trend that radio across the board can't really buck, whether it's music mm. radio, talk radio, whatever. Um, uh, the, the article quoted RNZ itself as saying our radio audience is incredibly loyal but continues to grow older and smaller. So that's just a, a, a kind of raw fact, if you like, that you've got to deal with. Uh, it says, even though those listeners may be in jeopardy, uh, this is how the article put it, as the New Zealand On Air annual survey of where the audiences are showed that for the first time a drop in traditional media use extended to the over 60s. So what we might have thought of as a kind of rusted on sort of audience that would naturally uh, be more inclined to tune into RNZ they're now adopting digital habits as well and as I guess older cohorts get older they'll be more digitally native as well so that's a challenge Uh, the tech commentator Peter Griffin said um, 
people are consuming content, live events, online social media, all of it, RNZ is going to have to be part of that or its audience will disappear. And in that front page podcast for the Herald that I mentioned, uh, Duncan Grieve, uh, put it slightly differently. RNZ seems more troubled from a ratings perspective than the sector more broadly, and in part that's potentially because its audience is widely perceived to be a bit older. So, you know, maybe they're suffering some sort of attrition decline associated with mortality, to put it politely. <laughs> I think nice. he knows what he means by mortality assisted decline. He's, <laughs> the audience is dying off. He just Indeed. didn't seem to want to say it like that. But yeah, yes. that's uh, that's one of the things RNZ is uh, all too uh, aware of. And uh, yeah, certainly um, stuff was in that uh, article for the uh, the post as well. Hope it's not contagious. Okay, mm. one person who invested time and money in journalism, uh, a business commentator, a fund manager, Brian Gaynor, well known in the industry, of course. He died in 2221. It uh, left a legacy to support journalism. And there's an important deadline coming up. Yeah, that's right. So he created a fund with a million dollars in it and there's a second million as well committed to the next year so this is an endowment that will support journalism projects so uh, applications for the first round of funding from the Brian Gaynor Business Journalism Initiative they're due this Friday so uh, not long to go and this is part of uh, Brian Gaynor's legacy his family uh, has uh, put this in place and yeah Brian was of course a Herald columnist for many many years and also uh, an investor in Business Desk the online subscriber uh, service uh, founded by Patrick Smelly which is um, uh, helping to administer uh, this, this fund. So who are they looking for? What sort of applicants? Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, they say applications that are educational and skills-based in nature are also welcome. So it's not just a journalism project, a series of features or a research project or anything like that. They say, you know, you can get training or travel or whatever. So you have to come up with the idea. Uh, But they also say there will be an expectation that information gained will be disseminated to others in the industry. So journalism research could benefit journalism more broadly. Um, but uh, they also say if, if you were sort of concerned that, you know, this was limited to, you know, reporting of business in the markets or something, they say business reporting, uh, it's not necessary for applicants to be actively involved in it. The proposal must be relevant somehow to economic, financial or business matters. But, you know, I guess that could apply, you know, a lot of social things have an economic element. So it's, it's a pretty broad canvas. So if you've got an idea for a journalism project that will take a bit of money, a bit of investment or training, uh, you can apply. Fantastic. Now, just briefly, only got a couple of minutes. Um, Tony Wall and the story of the TV uh, broadcaster Noel Edmonds now living in Ngati Moti in the Tasman district um, and a controversial presence there. Yeah, yeah, because you spoke to Hayden a bit about this mm. last week because um, Hayden, in between giving him a hard time, Tony Wall, for not running naked down the street, having promised he would uh, <laughs> if... Um, if the All Blacks beat Ireland in the World Cup. But this is a series he's done as well with Stuff's Nelson reporter Amy Riddout. Um, mm. So a couple of stories about how he's running this place, River Haven, and clashing with a, f- a few people. But um, interestingly, um, the latest one uh, is, takes it up to three now, three in the series, but it's uh, it's gone international because, um, as you mentioned, he was a huge star in the UK. I'm not quite sure how big he was here oh. in the 90s, but enormous in the UK. Totally, yeah, mm. not not so much here, but huge in the in the. He was, a, I think, a Radio One um, breakfast show host, and then a TV host, and the Big Weekend, and Mr. Blobby, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so this but, story's gone international. They've certainly noticed in the UK. So the yes. Sunday Star Times last weekend said Noel Edmonds builds crinkly bottom down under in New Zealand Village. <laughs> I think that was the yes. place where his house party and Mr. Blobby were hosted. Um, 
It says the former TV presenter is accused of colonising a corner of the island by buying up property and opening a pub serving saucy drinks. I think the drinks have sort of Benny Hill type names. The Daily Mail reported New Zealanders are furious about him colonising an idyllic village and the Spectator has a truly way up. He's saying Kiwis are now turning against wealthy foreigners and that Noel Edmonds is a sort of victim of our sort of short-sightedness or little little New Zealandness or something like that. And The Sun has another go. They quote him from a an interview back in June 2020 when he told them Kiwis can rest easy I'm not going to inflict myself upon this proud nation I'm not bringing Mr Blobby over I'm here to behave but according to Tony Wall and Amy Redout's articles it hasn't quite worked out that way <laughs> Well we await with interest for the next phase of this story <laughs> Hey Colin thank you so much as always for all your input it's a huge amount of effort on your part and uh, well done Thanks so much and will we, Hayden be back with you next week and I'll be with you I guess uh, in a fortnight from now Okay, and of course, 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, Media Watch on Jim's show.